Let's jump on in to Isaiah chapter 48. If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Isaiah 48. If you don't have one, there are usually pew Bibles in front of you in the uh, chairs there. And then the sermon passage is also printed in, uh, in the bulletin. We've been going through Isaiah for a while. If you're visiting with us, uh, chapter 40 is what starts the book of comfort in Isaiah. In the last few chapters, we've seen Isaiah tell God's people that even though they're headed for exile, there is hope that their captors will one day be captured. And yet, does that mean that all is right with God's people, no matter how wicked the world around them is? What about them? That's kind of what we see here in chapter 48. Without further ado, let's read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the name, uh, excuse me, stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, and they went out from my mouth, and I announced them, and suddenly I did them. And they came to pass because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard now see all this and will you not declare it from this time forth? I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your year has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you. But not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. 
There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, would you help us to see that majesty and beauty this morning? Would you help us to see our sin, but also to see our Savior? We ask it in the Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. What if you had a chance to see your regrets ahead of time? Because regret is only good if you avoid it, or if you avoid the same bad choice in the future. Regret stinks. Regrets are painful. When I think of regrets, I'm grateful I don't have many. When I think some more, I think of a documentary titled The Best That Never Was. Think of a championship winning football coach named Barry Switzer, whose championship rings couldn't shield him from regret. His greatest regret, he said, was the way he mishandled an uber-talented, can't-miss prospect named Marcus Dupree. And Dupree talks about his regrets, his choices as well. And who is Dupree? Well, the author of Friday Night Lights calls him the best high school football player ever. High school football player. But see, unless you're an Oklahoma fan, unless you're a real sports nerd like me, you may have never heard of him, which is why the documentary is called The Best There Never Was instead of The Best There Ever Was, because his athletic career was defined by regrets, bad choices, missed opportunities, bad choices he may never undo. But again, what if you could see your regrets ahead of time? What if someone told you you'll regret this and, and you knew they were right? Because that is what God does for Israel in Isaiah 48, the world's only reliable predictor of the future. He tells Israel her regrets ahead of time. And why? Because he wants her to avoid them, if at all possible. He wants good things for his people. He wants to give them a hope in a future. He wants them to make good choices, or at the very least, better choices, right? What if you could see your regrets ahead of time? What if you could avoid them? How do you avoid regrettable circumstances? How do you guarantee good choices? At the very least, you need to know three things. You need to know yourself, your future consequences, and your Savior. That's what our three points are about today. So first, let's learn about ourselves. Our first point this morning, a rebellious people. A rebellious people. Good company does not guarantee good choices. You see this in verses 1 through 8. A smart man once said, All true and sound wisdom consists in two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Let's get to know ourselves by looking at our ancient ancestors, God's Old Testament people, Israel. It's around the turn of the 6th century BC. Israel's been rebellious, so the enemy is at the gates, exile is in their future, and of course, just recently, the prophet Isaiah said, Israel's conqueror will be conquered. That's good news, of course, right? Good news for God's people. They will return to their homeland one day, but is she any less rebellious than she was before? 
Has she cleaned up her act? Is she any less wicked than the world around her, the pagans who don't worship the true God? Verse 1, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. That word, but, lands like thunder in that sentence, doesn't it? Oh, these people say the right things. They belong to the right organizations. Maybe they belong to FPC, First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem or something like that. But, but not in truth or right. They're not truly Israel. Their words are right, but their hearts aren't right. Verse 2 says, for they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the name of the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name, but, but something isn't right. Again, the, the thread of invasion and exile hangs over this passage like much of Isaiah. And why? Because they didn't listen to God's word. So they might have forgotten that God predicted it all. That time and chance, that is not what's in control of everything. Verses 3 through five, he says, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. But God's people forgot. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. Because of all that, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. No, no, it's not idols or astrological signs or random chance. None of these things determine our fate. God does. But Israel forgot that. How could she forget that? She did. How could she be so hard-headed and stiff-necked like a stubborn cow that won't plow where you want, like a worthless idol, like a, like a golden calf? They had become like what they worshipped. Isaiah seems to say, hypocrites you are, saying one thing, doing another, obstinate, stubborn, hard-headed, stiff-necked, more willing to give credit to the idols than to the God who carried you for years and years. And yes, we're talking about God's people. God's people from 2,700 years ago, yes, but God's people all the same. They don't listen. Even when God hits them over the head with his word, look at verse six, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it from this time forth? I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. This might be talking about the exile. It might be talking about the return from exile. Bottom line, God declared this and countless other things ahead of time, and then he did them to show who was really in control. Verse 7, they are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. Treacherous rebels, harsh words. They were this way, it says, from before birth. If you look at Psalm 139 and Psalm 51, David tells us that God knitted him together in his mother's womb. So we are 
right to highly value all of life, including the life of the, the unborn, the preborn. But David also says, Psalm 51, he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Parents, did you have to teach your children how to lie? Did you have to teach them how to throw a fit? And those of you who don't have kids, have you ever, have you ever noticed how much, kids, how, much, how much noise kids make on airplanes? Well, trust us. We notice it too. We're doing the best we can. But there's only so much we can do. You know, before I baptize a baby, especially an oldest child, I try to meet with the parents. I ask them a few questions, tell them how the service will go, and then I ask them a trick question. I hate to give this away, but hopefully it's a good lesson for all of us, right? I ask them, what can you as parents do to guarantee that your child becomes a Christian truly, sincerely, from the heart? I try to lay it on as thick as I can. And sometimes they laugh. They see what I'm doing. Sometimes they just get quiet, serious, somber. But almost all of them get the answer right. Nothing. There's nothing I can do. Not ultimately. Not to guarantee this. You might say, what, what about going to a good school? Two thoughts on that. Christian schools are a good thing. We are proud to have a Christian school headmaster as one of our members here. And the second thing, whether your kids are in a Christian school or not, you, parents, are the ultimate responsibility for educating, re-educating, as it were, your children in the truths of God's word and the world around them. We all need to remember that. But Again, how do I guarantee? How do I guarantee that someone else will make good choices? right school, right friends and influences, the right books, all of those are good and important. You should look for those things. You should encourage those things, but none of them are a guarantee. I mean, Israel had Isaiah, had other prophets. They lived in the promised land. They knew the right words to say. They still made bad choices. And that's, of course, putting it mildly. And the consequences of their sin, invasion, exile, no more promised land, no more temple. And the return from exile was underwhelming, just like the second temple. And was followed eventually by 400 years of prophetic silence. God's people, despite all our advantages, God's people back then, despite all their advantages, were a rebellious people. And their rebellion would lead to regrettable circumstances. That's the second thing we see. We see a regret-filled people. A regret-filled people. Second chances don't ensure good choices. Verses 12 to 22. Today we have what you could call a 1-3-2 kind of passage. An ACB sort of outline. See, the Hebrews like to put their main point in the middle. But sometimes it makes a better sermon to save that for the end. So... We're skipping to the end in a way. <clears throat> Again, rebellion led to regrettable circumstances or rebellion led to things they should have regretted, right? Verses 12 to 16 are a call to listen because Israel didn't listen. That's the problem. And then verses 17 to 22, that's the consequences of their disobedience. We'll spend more time there, but briefly the first half, verses 12 and 13, listen up, Israel. Because I'm your creator, I'm your sustainer. Verse 14, God says, listen, 
I love you, Israel, and I will be against Babylon and the Chaldeans, their enemies, their enslavers in the future. He has not permanently switched his allegiance. He will not always be angry, as it talks about in Psalm 103. Your captors will be captured. You will go home. But your trip home could have been so much better. It could be so much better. If you would listen to me, God says, and draw near to me. And if you don't listen or change your ways, you'll miss out on this. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If you would just listen to where your Redeemer tells you you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Shalom is there for the taking. Peace, wholeness of blessing, the idea of milk and honey and so much more. The promises that date back to Abraham are still good, God is saying. They can still be yours. Verse 19, your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never be cut off or destroyed from before me. What's he saying? He's saying, if you had paid attention to my commandments, my instruction. And notice, this is not a quid pro quo kind of thing here, right? It's not that we obey so we can earn God's blessing. But obedience is a sign that we are grateful for his deliverance, grateful for his blessing, grateful for it, and that we want to walk in it. It is a sign that duty has been turned into delight. An old hymn says it this way, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice, duty into choice. And it's a glad and willing choice. Our, our family is ready to begin again with the sword fighters scripture ministry, uh, scripture memory ministry, too many M's, sorry, here at our church. But why? Why do we want to do that? Not my words, but I'm happy to use them. We don't do it because Jesus will love us more. We do it because it benefits our hearts to have his word in our hearts. And because it honors him, the one who loved us and gave himself for sinners like us. Obedience always has a blessing. Sometimes obedience, the freedom from negative consequences, sometimes obedience is its own reward. But if we know the love of Christ, then we don't do it out of duty. We do it by choice, a glad and willing choice in gratitude to the good and gracious Savior that we have. But you know, sometimes God's people, we, we think we know better. We think we can find better blessings than what the fount of life, the light of men can give. Verse 20 says, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. This is God calling out once again, calling out to those who forfeited the peace like a river. There is still time. You still have a choice. And how do you know that God is calling you? Well, if you hear it, then he's calling. And if you have answered, 
then you know he has called you. Verse 21 says they did not thirst. Remember, this is piggybacking on the end of verse 20. The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob or Israel. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Don't you remember Israel? Don't you remember my people? Remember all of God's faithfulness from Egypt to the wilderness and beyond. Water from the rock, life out of certain death. Clothes and sandals that never wore out for 40 years in the wilderness. That's a thing that happened. Deuteronomy 8, 4 and 29, 5. This God, these kinds of blessings, they can be yours, but... Verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There's peace like a river waiting, but it's an exclusive offer. You must come to him. You must come to the one who created peace, the one who created you. And you see, some taste it and they never regret it. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 7.10, where Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Some taste peace, they never regret it. But others make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, one hymn says, even when they get the second chance. I mean, Israel is on at least her second chance, right? Maybe the 52nd. Didn't she already blow it? Despite the prophet's warnings, despite the privileges of God's word, godly heritage, godly bloodlines. Oh, they blew it so many times. And so exile awaited them. Good company, good circumstances, good teaching and more. It can't guarantee that somebody makes good choices. After all, Judas, someone once said, had the greatest small group leader of all time. So we tell ourselves, maybe experience is the best teacher. Maybe we'll learn from our mistakes, but not always. For every story about somebody who made the best of his second chance, we also get stories like Lance Armstrong. That one came to mind this week. In case you forgot, he was the cyclist who survived cancer and then he triumphed over even more adversity, winning seven, an unthinkable seven Tour de France titles. But he was cheating. And forget for a moment how many other cyclists might have been cheating. It's rampant in that sport because when somebody raised their hand and said, Lance Armstrong is cheating, Armstrong called them liars. He ruined their reputations. He was not a nice person. He ruined their livelihoods. And then, of course, the truth finally came out and it all unraveled. You see, if regret and grief lead to repentance, then praise the Lord. If it leads to a changed life, new obedience, the fruit of the spirit, then hallelujah. But if it leads to you getting more clever so that you don't get caught in your sin and wickedness the next time, then shame on you. You know that saying, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, fair enough. We should forgive quickly and rebuild trust slowly. But if you fool me twice, actually, it's still shame on you. And you may fool me or others, but you won't fool God. As we said, the right circumstances don't guarantee good choices and good character. Second chances 
don't guarantee that. Regrettable circumstances don't always lead to regret and repentance. So what does? What guarantees the character we want in ourselves, our kids, our church family? What about God's choice? God's discipline? God's refining fire in our lives? That leads to our third point, also our shortest. Thirdly, we see a refined people. A refined people. God's choice and his discipline leads to good character. Verses 6 through 11. Again, good circumstances don't guarantee it. Second chances don't guarantee it. Sometimes rebels stay rebellious, even when they get that second chance. They don't regret the things they should regret. But if God refines us, if he melts away all the rebellion, however he chooses to do it, if he purifies us, then we can hear God's word. Then we can hear his warning. We can heed his warning. We can avoid the regret before it ever happens sometimes. I'm going to repeat verses 6 and 7. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. Again, probably talking about the return from exile, one of the magnificent things uh, that God had done. God wanted to tell them ahead of time so that they would know that he was the Lord, the one who was in control of it all, the ruler of time and history and the hearts of mankind. But some of them weren't going to listen because they were rebellious. So what's God going to do? Is he just going to give up on his people? I mean, isn't that kind of what they deserved? Was he going to find a new people? Verse 9 says, for my namesake. I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Why is God going to do this? Why is he going to refine them? It's not because Israel was really sorry. It's not because they promised to try harder or do better. It's because forgiveness glorifies God. It's because faithfulness glorifies God. It magnifies his name. He redeems us. What does it say here in part? For his name's sake. You see, God had a right to be angry with his people. Still does. Because of all our failures. Because of all our squandered second chances. But God had said he would redeem a people. So he will be faithful. Because God is truth. He is unchanging. And if he broke his promise, he would be less than God. You know, on a one level, that's not really what we want to hear, is it? We want to hear, I love you so much because you're so great, because you're so cute, and so I'll overlook that stuff you did. You know, parents know this. The cuter your kids are, the harder it is to discipline them. And it is really hard to discipline my kids. Can I get an amen on that? That's not what God says. And you see on another level, this is better <laughs> because even if I stop being cute, even if I do something that's absolutely wretched, I have something to fall back on God's faithfulness that God will still cast away my sins as far as the east is from the west. If I turn to him and repent 
And in the process, he will not compromise his holiness. He will still be just and the justifier of sinful mankind. His justice will be displayed at the cross where Jesus took my sin and his mercy will be magnified in me, an undeserving sinner who found undeserved favor in the eyes of a holy and loving God. This is much better because it depends on him, not on me. My hope is in him. And down on me, he goes on to say, verses 10 and 11, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. See, God's passion for his own glory is good news for me. Because forgiveness glorifies our gracious God. Because faithfulness glorifies our holy and true and righteous God. But again, how can I how can I guarantee good choices? We've been dancing around that question. How can I guarantee that others will make good choices? Well, actually, I can't, but God can. When it comes to others, friends, family, whoever, I can't. I can't choose the right things for them. It's been said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But what about my choices? I, you, can pay attention to the one who wants to refine and redeem us. And if I fall upon him, if I rest on his promise to forgive those who repent, well, that's that's the only guarantee I have. And in one sense, all this is very passive. I trust in him to do the work and save me. But in another sense, there is a choice. Very clearly, Jesus said, You must be born again. He said, repent and believe the gospel. You must choose. And once you choose, you realize God enabled me to choose. Elsewhere, Jesus says, no one can come unless the father draws him. First John four says we love because he first loved us. So yes, there's a choice and you need his grace to refine you so that you can make this choice. And there is security in this choice. He also says in John six that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And what we read in second Corinthians earlier says everyone who's enabled to make that choice, they never regret it. And along the way, you realize there is a whole lot that you can't do for others that you can do for yourself. And even what you can do for yourself, you can't do it without his power unless he refines you, unless he calls you. And maybe at the end here, you're twisted up in knots. Matt, you've told me many things I can't do, many things not to do. What are you telling me to do? Follow some advice I heard 20 years ago from a godly teacher and coach. Tyrone Johnson once told us, you don't have to learn every lesson the hard way. In other words, you don't have to experience regret to find the right choice. You can avoid regret before you ever get there. That place of exile, that place of darkness and second guessing. How do you do that? Turn to Jesus and never turn away. You'll never regret that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your kindness to us never fails. Father, we get twisted up in knots. We get confused. We get in our own heads. At the end of the day, would you bring us back to the foot of the cross where we might find the grace and mercy that we need, the grace and mercy to keep going, the grace and mercy uh, 
to forget our past and to revel in the love of our Savior. We ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.